I'm Bob Schieffer. And I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and this is The Truth of the Matter. This is the podcast where we break down the policy issues of the day. Since the politicians are having their say, we will excuse them with respect and bring in the experts, many of them from CSIS, people who have been working these issues for years. No spin, no bombast, no finger pointing, just informed discussion. In today's episode of The Truth of the Matter, I'm flying solo as Bob Schieffer is out of town. To get to the truth of the matter on the longer-term impacts of COVID-19 and global migration, I have my dear colleague, Errol Yaboke, with me here today. Errol, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Andrew. Longtime fan, first-time caller. <laughs> there you go. Well, that's a good way to start. Tell us, you've written an absolutely fascinating piece, a series of pieces, actually, but the one I'm talking about came from April 20th. It is on the CSIS website. It's called, Can I Stay or Can I Go Now? Longer-Term Impacts of COVID-19 on Global Migration. This is part of our On the Horizon series. It's a new series of publications that our scholars offer their insights into the fundamental changes we may anticipate for our future social and economic world. Can you tell us what the gist of you wrote in that commentary? Sure. And as a fellow music buff, I, I hope you appreciated the Can I Stay or Can I Go Now title there. It was a little bit of a... From The Clash. Yes. Yes, sir. I felt I saw Paul Simon in, you know, right when, you know, and, and all the style and you yep. know, Mick and the rest of the boys all uh, in that title. As soon as I saw it. Amazing. Yeah, absolutely. Amazing. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I was honored to contribute to this series that that our president and CEO, Dr. Hamry, is, is leading because I, I think that the global migration piece is not one that is talked about enough. I think that we don't realize how much people being able to move has positive economic impacts and has for the last hundred years. You know, a lot of the, the economic growth that we've seen around the world is because people are able to kind of do what economists would say is smoothing. They're able to go where the jobs are. They're, they're able to seek opportunities elsewhere. And of course, that's not the case everywhere for everyone, but especially on this low income end of the spectrum, which is mostly what my article focuses on, I think the fact that COVID-19 has basically put a halt to most of global mobility is gonna have some pretty serious implications. And so that's what I wanted to write about. So just to put this in perspective, 2.6 billion people, which is more than were alive when World War II was happening, are currently globally under lockdown. That's right. So what are some of the short-term consequences of such a massive halt to people's movements? Yeah, so I, I think that there's some of the ones that are written about a lot that you know are, are more economics related, that unemployment is skyrocketing both here in the US and, and globally, inequality is growing and global poverty levels are gonna be higher than they were since the 1990s, which is shocking and, and really against the, the trend uh, recently. And I think that the health and livelihoods of the most vulnerable people are obviously most affected. And I think those are broad short-term consequences that we're already seeing. I think for migrants, you have all of those consequences at play, and then you've got three or four others. You've got 
many of the low-skilled workers having lost their jobs. Andrew, I don't know where you live in the DC area, but for me, I was walking around Mount Pleasant the other day and there was just quite a few of these day laborers that were out there that work informally, that do painting and other things that were just milling about. There was no work for them. You've got plenty of low-income, low-skilled migrants, which are quite honestly the engine of economic growth globally, that are unemployed right now. They simultaneously don't have a safety net on which they can fall. And so, you know, you and I, we're U.S. citizens. We, we lose a job. We can get unemployment benefits. We can have kind of family and, and other uh, safety nets help us out. That's not really available to them. There's a new phenomenon that's creeping up that is troubling to me, which is xenophobia and, and increased xenophobia towards migrants. You've got uh, sub-Saharan Africans who are in China being evicted from their apartments over fear that they're carriers of COVID-19, however ridiculous that may sound to you and me. This is a real phenomenon. And so I think those are some real migration and, and migrant-related impacts. And the last one, uh, Andrew, is these people that still have jobs are disproportionately on the front lines. Who cleans hospitals? Who's out there delivering food and doing all of these other things that people like that can't socially distance as well as, as those of us who are privileged enough to work from home? And so I think that there is, they're sort of putting themselves at disproportionately higher risk of the disease itself. So our country has been increasingly looking inward. This pandemic may force us to look even further inward. It may cut us off from the rest of the world for some time. What do you think the impact of this is going to be on the United States? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I think that in the short term, and we're already seeing this with President Trump using the U.S. jobs and the need to protect U.S. jobs as reasons to halt immigration. We saw that recently. That seems to be a narrative that's flowing around Capitol Hill as well. And it's it comes from exactly what you're talking about, which is, you know, when the economy does start going again, there's going to be a preference for native born, you know, U.S. citizens, et cetera. And I, I think it's going to take us a while to realize that, that sort of native-born American citizens are really imperfect substitutes. There's there's a reason that that low-skilled migrants fill a lot of these jobs, and it's because it's not economically feasible for businesses to employ native-born folks, and and Americans don't want to do the jobs that migrants do. And so there's a there's a bunch of realities there that I think it's going to take us. A, a while to, to realize the implications of. But with 26 million people currently unemployed and, and growing, do you think that may change? Do you think that you know, native-born Americans may just revert to taking whatever jobs that are available? You know, I, I think if we were sitting in what economists would call sort of a perfect world or holding all else constant, that makes total rational sense. It's just that that's not actually been the case throughout history. Now, coronavirus may be changing all of this and it may be a new day and a new dawn. I'm skeptical that that's going to be the case. And so I think there's going to be gaps in our economy moving forward. So how should we be thinking about this in the longer term when COVID-19 is behind us, whenever that may be? Will things just go back to the way they were? 
Yeah, I, I think that there's some folks out there that perhaps think that when you turn a faucet off, you can just turn it back on and the water will start flowing again. I'm skeptical. And I think that there's going to be some longer term consequences that we're just now starting to think about. And this was really the goal for this piece was to try to think ahead a little bit on some of this. So if you'll indulge me, Andrew, I'll, I'll go through a couple of these. Feel free to stop me along the way. But I think one of the things that we don't think about enough is how much money flows between developed countries and developing countries. So we call this remittances in the biz, but it's basically money uh, that's being sent back home by by migrants. So you wrote that migrants sent an estimated $551 billion home in 2019 in the form of money and goods. Yeah. Which is known in the biz, as you said, as remittances. That's right. And so imagine that money is coming from those migrants, a lot of them low-income migrants, doing whatever jobs in places like Washington, D.C., and then sending money home to El Salvador or the Philippines or, or wherever else. Well, what happens when those jobs go away or when that income goes away? That money also goes away. And so, you know, if you look at remittance flows broadly, and I don't want to get too wonky here, Andrew, but if you if you look at remittance flows Obviously, the Indias and the Chinas of the world have the most number of, of migrants, people overseas. So obviously, they're getting the most money back in kind of real terms. But in relative terms, you've got a country like the Philippines that gets almost 10% of its GDP, its income, from remittances. And you've got places like Tonga, which is perhaps a country that not many people have heard of, a small Pacific island, where 40% of their gross domestic product, their national income comes from people, Tongans living outside of Tonga. What happens when that money dries up? That's gonna be really, really problematic. And so I see this as, a, as an issue that the Chinas and the Indias and the Mexicos, which have huge remittance flows, I, their economies are big enough that I think they can deal with it and they will come out of this. I'm worried about the places that have multi-dimensional challenges. So think about poor countries like Bangladesh, like Tonga, that really don't have safety nets themselves. They don't have unemployment insurance. They don't have, you know, all the things that, you know, healthcare, et cetera, that, that we have in the developed world. But even a country like Egypt that is really critical to our strategic interests in the Middle East could have a major problem with this, right? Absolutely. I think, you know, there could be security implications of the economic downturn that's related to decreased remittance flows in places like Egypt. I mean, this is something that I think is is far enough on the horizon, not to steal the title of the piece, but it's far enough on the horizon that, that people haven't really thought through the multidimensional implications of this, but, but that's coming. And those types of economic downturn in places like Egypt, I think are gonna have pretty big impact. Well, so let's just let's just game that out for a second. So if you were on the National Security Council and your job was to look on the horizon at countries of strategic importance like Egypt that we're going to be dealing with this issue, what does something like this mean for Egypt and for our strategic interests? Does it affect potential terrorism? Does it affect U.S.-Israel relations? Does it affect harmony in the Arab world, all of the above? Yeah, so I'm a big believer in the paramount importance of governance and good governance, especially. 
And good governance is basically a, a government like that in Egypt being able to provide some sort of services or stability to their people. Take what's happening in the United States right now, Andrew, with different states and this debate over are we going to let them default or not. That's related to taxes. That's related to income. That's related to their budgets being broken right now. We will be able to resolve that here in the United States, I hope, from the federal government. In places like Egypt, if the money that funds their government goes away and they're not able to provide services to their people, that creates space for governance. And if you talk to people who are experts in ISIS and other armed groups, they're not just armed groups. They're actually providing governance services. And so my fear is that if there are voids in governance in places like Egypt, they're going to be sure they're going to be less sort of dedicated to the Middle East peace process and some of those other priorities that they've had. That's, I think, a given. But even in their own countries, it's creating space and sort of governance vacuums that, that I worry about. Take us through more of this piece, because the, the more we dig into it, the more fascinating it gets. Well, thanks for that. I, I think I want to double click a little bit on this multidimensionality thing. So you've got countries that are facing health challenges. You know, Tonga deals with a lot of, you know, things like hypertension and, and heart disease and the lack of remittances and, and kind of the lack of migrants being able to provide some sort of safety net are going to mean that not only are deaths related to the coronavirus going to be high in those places, but they're going to be the, the folks that are left behind there are going to be less able to, to address some of these existing challenges that they already have. So it's, it's kind of like this exacerbation of existing challenges. And the ones that I really am concerned about are the places that are, for example, food insecure or that are suffering from from forced displacement crises. So, you know, think about Syrians in the Middle East and, and you know, think about Libya or or northeast Nigeria, or even, South, Sudan or South Sudan, or Yemen. Exactly. These are places where, sure, there's going to be direct impacts of people getting sick and dying. That's already happening. But You've also got extreme disruptions to global supply chains. So humanitarian actors can't get there. They can't access where they need to be accessing. And oh, by the way, if you don't have farmers in the fields, if they're sick or if they're, you know, migrants are not able to move and work in the fields, then you've got all of this sort of uncultivated cops. Andrew, I was reading about the Dutch and there's all these sort of flowers that are uncultivated in the Netherlands. We'll translate that into staple crops in East Africa. And, and you've got a problematic scenario whereby these people are already food insecure. And now you've added this other kind of challenge to, to crop cultivation. So let's talk about the difficulty of physical distancing that this brings with regard to migration? So I think people don't realize that a lot of, especially in the low income migration side, people when they move, both when they're in transit and when they arrive in a place like Spain or Iowa or Russia or someplace like this, a lot of times they're living in pretty close quarters. These are, you know, a small 700 square foot apartment that has 12 people living in it, for example. 
there's not a whole lot of way that even in sort of normal low-income migration scenarios like I just painted, it's pretty hard for them to socially distance. Add to that the fact that the jobs that they're doing, as I mentioned before, are mostly outside or they're on the front lines of this. And so they're unable to, both in their personal lives and in their professional lives, distance themselves. Now, I'm much more concerned, Andrew, about folks that have less agency in this. And so by that, I mean folks like refugees, the forcibly displaced, internally displaced. You've got 700,000 Syrians that are basically pooling on the border with Turkey between Idlib and, and the Turkish border, living not only in close quarters, they're living outside, they're living with poor access to sanitation. I mean, we've been making memes out of hand washing here in, in sort of developed countries, and there's not really a whole lot of ability to hand wash and, and social distance and, and practice proper hygiene in a lot of places like that outside of Idlib. And so think about refugee camps. They're not They're exactly really, really walking close. around with Purell in their pockets either. They're right? not walking around with Purell. And, and you know, you've got in Kutupalong camp uh, in Bangladesh, which is the largest refugee camp in the world for Rohingya, you've basically got a place that's a fraction of the physical size of New York City and about an eighth of the population. So, you know, they've got eight times the people per kilometer that New York City has. So you think New York City's crowded. Go to Kutupalong camp in Bangladesh and you'll see just the inability to not only keep up hygiene standards that are required for, for a pandemic like this, but also just separate yourself from your neighbor. So how is this all exacerbating inequality between and within countries? This is a good question. So I think, as I mentioned before, Mexico and China and United States and some of these other places that are dealing with kind of challenges and, and in the case of, of Mexico and, and China and India, decreased remittance flows. Like I said, their economies are a little bit big. They're going to be able to handle it from a countrywide perspective. But even in their countries, India, for example, has incredible levels of internal migration. And those folks don't have jobs right now. And so you've got sort of the, you know, wealthy individuals in countries like India who, sure, their assets are being depleted right now. Stock market's down. Their, their businesses are losing money, sure. But they're not at risk of hunger. They're not at risk of just falling below that poverty line, that extreme poverty line. And so I think what you're going to see in places like India is more people fall into that poverty line and create these disparities. You know, everybody's going to lose a little bit. I think the, the folks at the higher end of the income spectrum are going to lose less than the folks at the bottom. And they have the folks at the bottom have less to lose. So that's within a country. Then, you know, you think about countries like Bangladesh, like Tonga, like even Egypt, some of the ones that we've been talking about. And, you know, even though the United States seems to be an epicenter of this global pandemic and we've spent trillions of dollars trying to get out of it, we're still going to come out of this one of the largest, if not the largest economy in the world. So is China, et cetera. And what's going on now 
both in terms of just the the health implications that my colleague Steve Morrison, I think, talks really eloquently about, but also because of this decreased remittance flows, the economic challenges that I've been talking about, this could break countries. This could really lead countries that were hurtling towards middle income. This could lead them to be in that more, you know, South Sudan category, which I hope I'm wrong, by the way. Andrew, this is one of those moments where I pause and I say, I hope I'm being overly alarmist and I hope that this doesn't come to pass. But I see us, especially as we look more inward, as you said before, which I think is true, you know, we're caring more about ourselves and we're not realizing that some of these countries that, oh, by the way, are our allies and partners in the global fight against terrorism and, and violent extremism. And, you know, we have vested interest in some of these developing countries they could fail. Their economies could fail. You know, we've had four famines over the past couple of years. That could double. These are things that I worry about. You think we're looking at failed states, societal breakdowns, and those are the kind of things that big economies like the United States and other global powers are going to need to deal with in one form or the other. I hope I'm wrong. But yeah, that's what I'm saying. There's a glimmer of hope, Andrew, in, in that these bailouts or whatever you want to call them in places like the United States have included extra resources for things like foreign aid that, you know, foreign aid is not the panacea to the problems that we were talking about, but it's one tool that we have. And there have been in, in these bailout packages, there have been increased resources for places like the U.S. Agency for International Development and others. And I think that it's not enough. Of course, it's not enough. Uh, it's never enough. But we need to make sure that our policymakers and our politicians continue to see that that this is not just a U.S. problem. This is a global problem, and it's going to disproportionately negatively affect those in, in the developing world. So what, what should our policymakers be thinking about? Should they be thinking of this as an existential threat? And should they be planning for this now? I think so. I, I mean, at the very end of my piece, I, I kind of give a nod to the fact that policymakers are inward looking right now. I mean, their their constituencies are, are suffering back in Ohio and Oklahoma and wherever else. I, I get that. My call to action is don't forget about the foreign piece of this, because sure, there are short term humanitarian implications. There are short term development implications, um, both of which have strong bipartisan support here in the United States. But I think there are long term threats to stability that haven't been fully gamed out. You know, what happens if some of these countries that, like I said, have been partners of ours in very important efforts globally and are sort of global shock absorbers to some, some of these global conflicts, what happens if they're no longer able to absorb those shocks? Errol, my friend, thank you for this fascinating analysis. The next time we have you on, we'll do a thorough analysis of The Clash and their album Combat Rock. <laughs> I would welcome that. That'd be great. Because I could talk about that all day. Um, we could get into London Calling, some of the older stuff. Thank you very much for helping us get to the truth of the matter on this complex issue that, as you point out, is on our horizon. Excellent. Thanks, Andrew. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. 
You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 